Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As part of our new inspiring TED Talks series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, today I explore Sheryl Sandberg's famous 2010 TED Talk, Why We Have Too Few Women Leaders. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Today, as part of our inspiring TED Talk series, I wanted to share with all of you Cheryl Sandberg's famous TED Talk about why there are too few women leaders. In this famous TED Talk, Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg looks at why a smaller percentage of women than men reach the top of their professions. You can watch the full video by going to the link in the show notes to hear three powerful pieces of advice for women aiming for the C-suite in their industry. For those of you who may not know, Sheryl Sandberg is the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook, the founder of LeanIn.org, and a philanthropist. In June of 2012, she was elected to Facebook's Board of Directors, becoming the first woman to serve on its board. Before she joined Facebook as its COO, Sandberg was the Vice President of Global Online Sales and Operations at Google, and was involved in its philanthropic arm, Google.org. Before that, Sandberg served as the Chief of Staff for United States Secretary of the Treasury, Lawrence Summers. She is an amazing woman, an amazing executive with an incredible career, and I hope that you will all enjoy her famous TED Talk, along with some of my thoughts and commentary along the way. So for any of us in this room today, let's start out by admitting we're lucky. We don't live in the world our mothers lived in, our grandmothers lived in, where career choices for women were so limited. And if you're in this room today, most of us grew up in a world where we have basic civil rights. And amazingly, we still live in a world where some women don't have them. But all that aside, we still have a problem, and it's a real problem. And the problem is this. Women are not making it to the top of any profession anywhere in the world. The numbers tell the story quite clearly. 190 heads of state, nine are women. Of all the people in parliament in the world, 13% are women. In the corporate sector, women at the top, C-level jobs, board seats, tops out at 15, 16%. The numbers have not moved since 2002 and are going in the wrong direction. And even in the nonprofit world, a world we sometimes think of as being led by more women, women at the top, 20%. 
We also have another problem, which is that women face harder choices between professional success and personal fulfillment. A recent study in the U.S. showed that of senior managers, of married senior managers, two-thirds of the married men had children, and only one-third of the married women had children. A couple of years ago, I was in New York, and I was pitching a deal, and I was in one of those fancy New York private equity offices you, you can picture, and I'm in the meeting, it's about a three-hour meeting, and two hours in, there kind of needs to be that bio break, and everyone stands up, and the partner running the meeting starts looking really embarrassed. And I realize he doesn't know where the women's room is in his office. So I start looking around for moving boxes, figuring they just moved in, but I don't see any. And so I said, so did you just move into this office? And he said, no, we've been here about a year. And I said, are you telling me that I'm the only woman to have pitched a deal in this office in a year? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, or maybe you're the only one who had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so the question is, how are we going to fix this? Yes, how are we going to fix this? Such an important question. She already lays out in the very beginning of her TED Talk uh, an incredible, inequitable kind of a situation just as she's going to meet with this group of equity funders. And the fact that they have never, in the, the year that they've been in those offices, had a female come to pitch anything is incredible. And it's just one indication of the inequities in the tech industry, of course, uh, but, but really in terms of women in the workplace and women in leadership positions. There's really no good reason or excuse for that. And while it may not be intentional, it may not be that uh, anyone in that firm specifically had tried to keep out women, there are systemic barriers that keep women and people of color and other uh, minority groups, it keeps them out of these types of positions and these types of opportunities where they get access to the types of funding that they need and other uh, resources to be able to, to move forward in their careers and help their organizations. We need to figure out how we can fix this. How do we change these numbers at the top? How do we make this different? I want to start out by saying I talk about this, about keeping women in the workforce, because I really think that's the answer. In the high-income part of our workforce, in the people who end up at the top Fortune 500 CEO jobs or the equivalent in other industries, the problem that I am convinced is that women are dropping out. Now, people talk about this a lot, and they talk about things like flex time and mentoring and programs companies should have to train women. I want to talk about none of that today, even though that's all really important. Today, I want to focus on what we can do as individuals. What are the messages we need to tell ourselves? What are the messages we tell the women that work with and for us? What are the messages we tell our daughters? Now, at the outset, I want to be very clear that this speech comes with no judgments. I don't have the right answer. I don't even have it for myself. I left uh, San Francisco, where I live, on Monday, and I was getting on the plane for this conference, and my daughter, who's three, when I dropped her off at preschool, did that whole hugging the leg, crying, mommy, don't get on the plane thing. This is hard. I feel guilty sometimes. I know no women whether they're at home or whether they're in the workforce, that don't feel that sometimes. So I'm not saying that staying in the workforce is the right thing for everyone. 
My talk today is about what the messages are if you do want to stay in the workforce. And I think there are three. She's about to lay out the three main points of her presentation, but I appreciate how she leads into this by saying she doesn't have the answer, and it's a very complex problem. It's multifaceted, and there are lots of reasons why we don't see as many female executives and women in various leadership positions in the workplace. She is convinced that it has to do with labor force participation and that women need to stay in the workplace in order to have those opportunities. Uh, surely uh, that plays a, a role, but there are lots of different factors. I appreciate that she has the intellectual humility to recognize that she doesn't actually know all the answers, but she is exploring this and wants to try to figure it out. And we all need to ask ourselves these important questions as we try to figure it out and figure out what's right for us, for our families, and the types of um, narratives and messaging that we uh, convey to our daughters and to the women in our lives. One, sit at the table. Two, make your partner a real partner. And three, look at that. Don't leave before you leave. Number one, sit at the table. Just a couple weeks ago at Facebook, we hosted a very senior government official, and he came in to meet with senior uh, execs from around Silicon Valley. And everyone kind of sat at the table, and then he had these two women who were traveling with him who were pretty senior in his department, and I kind of said to them, sit at the table, come on, sit at the table. And they sat on the side of the room. When I was in college, my senior year, I took a course called European Intellectual History. Don't you love that kind of thing from college? Wish I could do that now. And I took it with my roommate, Carrie, who was then a brilliant literary student and went on to be a brilliant literary scholar. And my brother, smart guy, but a water polo playing pre-med who was a sophomore. The three of us take this class together. And then Carrie reads all the books in the original Greek and Latin, goes to all the lectures. I read all the books in English and go to most of the lectures. My brother is kind of busy. He reads one book of 12 and goes to a couple of lectures, marches himself up to our room a couple days before the exam to get himself tutored. The three of us go to the exam together, and we sit down, and we study, you know, sit there for three hours in our little blue notebooks. Yes, I'm that old. And we walk out, and we look at each other, and we say, how'd you do? And Carrie says, boy, I feel like I didn't really draw out the main point on the Hegelian dialectic. And I say, God, I really wish I had really connected John Locke's theory of property, the philosophers that follow. And my brother says, I got the top grade in the class. <laughs> you got the top grade in the class? You don't know anything. <laughs> the problem with these stories is that they show what the data shows. Women systematically underestimate their own abilities. If you test men and women and you ask them questions on totally objective criteria like GPAs, men get it wrong slightly high and women get it wrong slightly low. Women do not negotiate for themselves in the workforce. A study in the last two years of people entering the workforce out of college showed that 57% of boys entering, or men, I guess, are negotiating their first salary, and only 7% of women. And most importantly, men attribute their success to themselves, and women attribute it to other external factors. If you ask men why they did a good job, They'll say, I'm awesome. If you ask, <laughs> obviously, 
why are you even asking? If you ask women why they did a good job, what they'll say is someone helped them, they got lucky, they worked really hard. Why does this matter? Boy, it matters a lot because no one gets to the corner office by sitting on the side, not at the table. And no one gets the promotion if they don't think they deserve their success or they don't even understand their own success. I wish the answer were easy. I wish I could just go tell all the young women I work for, all these fabulous women, believe in yourself, negotiate for yourself, own your own success. I wish I could tell that to my daughter. But it's not that simple. Because what the data shows above all else is one thing, which is that success and likability are positively correlated for men and negatively correlated for women. And everyone's nodding, because we all know this to be true. There's a really good study that shows this really well. There's a famous Harvard Business School study on a woman named Heidi Roizen. And she's an operator in a venture cap in a company in Silicon Valley. And she uses her contacts to become a very successful venture capitalist. In 2002, not so long ago, a professor who was then at Columbia University took that case and made it Heidi Roizen. And he gave that case out, both of them, to two groups of students. He changed exactly one word, Heidi to Howard. But that one word made a really big difference. He then surveyed the students. And the good news was the students, both men and women, thought Heidi and Howard were equally competent, and that's good. The bad news was that everyone liked Howard. He's a great guy. You want to work for him. You want to spend the day fishing with him. But Heidi, not so sure. She's a little out for herself. She's a little political. You're not sure you'd want to work for her. This is the complication. We have to tell our daughter and our colleagues, we have to tell ourselves to believe we got the A, to reach for the promotion, to sit at the table. And we have to do it in a world where for them there are sacrifices they will make for that, even though for their brothers there will not. The saddest thing about all of this is that it's really hard to remember this, and I'm about to tell a story which is truly embarrassing for me, but I think important. I gave this talk at Facebook not so long ago to about 100 employees. And a couple hours later, there was a young woman who works there, sitting kind of outside my little desk, and she wanted to talk to me. And I said, OK, and she sat down and we talked, and she said, I learned something today. I learned that I need to keep my hand up. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're giving this talk, and then you said you're going to take two more questions. And I had my hand up with lots of other people, and then you took two more questions, and I put my hand down, and I noticed all the women put their hand down, and then you took more questions only from the men. And I thought to myself, wow, if it's me who cares about this, obviously, giving this talk, during this talk, I can't even notice that the men's hands are still raised and the women's hands are still raised. How good are we as managers of our companies and our organizations at seeing that the men are reaching for opportunities more than women? We've got to get women to sit at the table sit at the table. It's a very simple idea, but it's very hard to do. And th that was a longer clip. I, I thought about breaking it up into a few shorter clips and adding in my commentary, but really uh, she expresses so well uh, some stories and some various uh, data and information about what really we're dealing with. Uh, and it's it's deep in the psyche uh, of, of women and a difference a common difference between men and women uh, in terms of how they perceive their own connection with the world around them. Uh, the, the story about 
uh, her brother, thinking that he did almost nothing and got the highest grade in the class, versus her friend who had done so much and was very self-critical and ultimately didn't feel like she had done very well, is a classic example. And it's why we end up with so many incompetent men in leadership positions. Now, that's not to say that we can't have uh, competent, capable, uh, successful men who are very, uh, very good at what they do in leadership positions. But disproportionately, the research shows that we end up with more incompetent men at higher level positions within organizations um, and and in large part, it's due to this phenomenon. It's due to men feeling like they can do it, like they're capable. And that's, I suppose, a good thing uh, to, to have confidence. But it's not a good thing when it's at the expense of actually competent, capable women who can actually do the work, who can actually do the job. And for whatever reason, they've been socialized to to be more self-critical, to not take those chances, to not negotiate for themselves, to not push for a seat at the table. Whether a woman chooses to negotiate for herself or she decides to fight for a seat at the table, table or not, we as leaders within organizations, and I say this as a man, if, if I'm a man in an organization, I can't wait for a woman to negotiate or to fight for space and room for her to be valued and treated with dignity and respect. I have to proactively go after that and treat everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of uh, any demographic difference or, or type of uh, variation in thinking, I need to treat everyone with dignity and respect. I need to give everyone equal opportunity. And that is illustrated by the last part of her story in that clip. If I don't notice that only the men keep their hand up when I've already said I'm not taking any more questions, and all the women put their hands down, if I don't proactively call on more women at that point and I only call on the men, what I'm doing is disproportionately rewarding behavior that actually is contrary to what I said I was going to do in the first place. And and I'm disproportionately hurting those that are trying to honor my request. That happens in organizations all the time. And and let's be honest, it's not it's not strictly a gender thing. It's not just men versus women. Uh, it, it's dispositional, it's it's personality, there's lots of different factors that lead into it. But in the aggregate, as we look at it, it's very clear that men tend to put themselves out there more and women uh, tend not to. And we shouldn't wait to make decisions or to include people, how to include people based on those factors. We simply have to allow for everyone to contribute. And that means as a leader, I need to proactively go out and make sure that someone has a seat at the table, even if they haven't fought for that seat. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders 
have all had their unique strengths and flaws and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Message number two, make your partner a real partner. I've become convinced that we've made more progress in the workforce than we have in the home. The data shows this very clearly. If a woman and a man work full time and have a child, the woman does twice the amount of housework the man does, and the woman does three times the amount of childcare the man does. So she's got three jobs or two jobs, and he's got one. Who do you think drops out when someone needs to be home more? The causes of this are really complicated, and I don't have time to go into them, and I don't think Sunday football watching and general laziness is the cause. I think the cause is more complicated. I think as a society, we put more pressure on our boys to succeed than we do on our girls. I know men that stay home and work in the home to support wives with careers, and it's hard. When I go to the mommy and me stuff and I see the father there, I notice that the other mommies don't play with him. And that's a problem, because we have to make it as important a job, because it's the hardest job in the world, to work inside the home for people of both genders if we're going to even things out and let women stay in the workforce. <laughs> Studies show that households with equal earning and equal responsibility also have half the divorce rate. And if that wasn't good enough motivation for everyone out there, they also have more, mm, how shall I say this on this stage, they know each other more in the biblical sense as well. We need to be equal partners. It's very simple. The impact on women is huge. The data is very clear that women disproportionately take on the brunt of the housework, the child care, the elder care, uh, all of those things that happen in the home, disproportionately women take on the, the heavier load. And that takes a toll in their career. That takes a toll in their ability to pursue or even want to try to pursue uh, those types of leadership and executive roles and responsibilities. So I, as a man, need to support my wife. I need to support her in doing my fair share, doing, doing my part of the load at home, if not making an extra effort to take on even more of the load to support her as she's trying to get back into the workforce. Uh, many of you who are listeners to the podcast, you know that we have a large family. We have six kids. My wife has sacrificed tremendously for the rearing of our kids. And that has disrupted her ability to participate in the workforce. But she's an incredibly intelligent woman. She's very capable and very talented. But she's dis she's put at a disadvantage because of the years she's spent at home. So I feel a particular responsibility to, to not just do my fair share, but to actually do more because it's her turn. It's her turn to pursue her dream, to pursue her career. And I need to support her in that. It's a very simple idea, but I can't put myself first. I can't just look at my own career goals and trajectory and 
do that at the expense of my wife, my kids, uh, or any of the opportunities that she may have in the future. Message number three, don't leave before you leave. I think there's a really deep irony to the fact that actions women are taking, and I see this all the time, with the objective of staying in the workforce actually lead to their eventually leaving. Here's what happens. We're all busy, everyone's busy, a woman's busy. And she starts thinking about having a child. And from the moment she starts thinking about having a child, she starts thinking about making room for that child. How am I gonna fit this into everything else I'm doing? And literally from that moment, she doesn't raise her hand anymore. She doesn't look for a promotion. She doesn't take on the new project. She doesn't say, me, I want to do that. She starts leaning back. The problem is that, let's say she got pregnant that day. That day, nine months of pregnancy, three months of maternity leave, six months to catch her breath. Fast forward two years, more often, and as I've seen it, women start thinking about this way earlier when they get engaged, when they get married, when they start thinking about trying to have a child, which can take a long time. One woman came to see me about this, and I kind of looked at her, she looked a little young, and I said, so are you and your husband thinking about having a baby? And she said, oh no, I'm not married. She didn't even have a boyfriend. <laughs> I said, you're thinking about this just way too early. But the point is that what happens once you start kind of quietly leaning back? Everyone who's been through this, and I'm here to tell you, once you have a child at home, your job better be really good to go back because it's hard to leave that kid at home. Your job needs to be challenging. It needs to be rewarding. You need to feel like you're making a difference. And if two years ago, you didn't take a promotion and some guy next to you did, if three years ago you stopped looking for new opportunities, you're gonna be bored because you should have kept your foot on the gas pedal. Don't leave before you leave. Stay in, keep your foot on the gas pedal until the very day you need to leave to take, to take a break for a child, and then make your decisions. Don't make decisions too far in advance, particularly ones you're not even conscious you're making. My generation really sadly is not gonna change the numbers at the top. They're just not moving. We are not gonna get to over 50% of the population in my generation, there will not be 50% of people at the top of any industry. But I'm hopeful that future generations can. I think a world that was run where half of our countries and half of our companies were run by women would be a better world. And it's not just because people would know where the women's bathrooms are, even though that would be very helpful. I think it would be a better world. I have two children. I have a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. I want my son to have a choice to contribute fully in the workforce or at home, and I want my daughter to have the choice to not just succeed, but to be liked for her accomplishments. Thank you. Don't leave before you leave. I think this is great advice for everybody, men and women, regardless of life situation. The idea is lift where you stand, bloom where you're planted, you know, if you're, if you're at a job, you may be planning for two years, five years out, but you don't know what the future's going to hold. And if you start to think about having a child as a woman, you don't know how long that's going to take. You don't know what could happen in the interim. And so bloom where you're planted. Continue to, to explore opportunities to develop yourself, to develop your career. And that doesn't mean that you can't make the decision to 
to make a shift, to to leave the workforce for a time, uh, or or whatever seems to work for you and your family. Uh, those are all valid choices, valid decisions. But don't sell yourself short because you think ah, it's not going to matter. I'm going to have a kid, and so then you you don't keep putting your foot on the gas pedal as as she says. And I, I found this to be true in my own life. Now, again, I'm a man. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged, white, straight man. Um, I have all sorts of privilege, and I recognize that. But I also have recognized that even when I have found myself in uh, different situations and different opportunities, uh, that I always have the option of choosing to mentally check out, to think about the next opportunity, to think about um, the, new, the new scenario, the new situation, and to stop putting my foot on the gas in relation to the current role that I have, the current job that I have, and the current opportunities that are before me. And if I can continue to do that, I'll continue to be productive, I'll continue to succeed. But the moment you start to be complacent, whether that's because you are thinking about having a kid uh, or whatever, for any reason, uh, the moment you start becoming complacent and you you lean back, as she says, then you're not making the most of your opportunities. You're not leveraging your own capabilities and you're not continuing to learn and grow. Now for women, this is particularly important because there are structural disadvantages in place for them in the workplace. And so they're disproportionately hurt by that tendency to, to leave before you leave, to lean back, to to start looking towards perhaps having that child or uh, perhaps um, you know thinking about uh, their role in relation to uh, perceived gender roles and what they think they should be doing uh, in the future. Ultimately, I love this TED Talk because she really hits on three of the major, fairly significant um, aspects of what I think we all need to be thinking about. I, I hope women who are listening will consider these three aspects, but I hope the men listening will also consider them and also think about, you know, it, it, how do you support your partner? How do you as a leader uh, break down barriers and help the women in the workplace, women on your team to to see themselves in leadership positions, to to uh, reach and to stretch for those positions? And, and if they're not putting themselves forward, in part because of perceived lack of ability or competence or or whatever that that you can proactively go out and try to recruit them to 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 call on them in meetings to assign them to projects even if they d- don't volunteer you know there's so many things we can do as leaders to make sure that the women in our lives the women in the workforce the women in our teams have opportunities and we don't need to wait for them to negotiate their spot, to to fight for their role, for their position. We can proactively make room for them. We can proactively invite them to the table, proactively make sure that their voices are heard, proactively make sure that they're not talked over in meetings, that uh, others, and particularly men, don't take credit for their ideas in meetings, so on and so forth. Now, there are so many aspects of this issue where we disproportionately have um, much greater numbers of men than women in leadership positions. This TED Talk only talked about three specific aspects that we can consider as we move forward. And it's complex, and there's many more 
facets that need to be considered. We need to look at structural constraints and roadblocks that can be removed. Um, but ultimately, I hope that everyone listening today will take some time to self-reflect. Think about your current situation. Think about your people, your team. Think about what you can do to be more supportive uh, and to really help everyone you work with maximize their capacities, maximize their potential. And I hope that we can always, always treat everyone with dignity and respect, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of any of those factors. We're all people. We're all humans. We all deserve dignity and respect. We all have innate value. And we cannot be satisfied with systems, processes, organizations, culture, society at large. We can't be satisfied when we see these types of disparities that are so blatant. I hope you enjoyed this TED Talk as much as I have over the years. I hope you'll consider it, share it with your team, and I hope everyone has a great week. Stay healthy and safe. Find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. Ordinary, everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. 
We look forward to having you join us.